obviously mentioned we would be in Leviticus walking through this, and, and tonight's lesson is going to be an introduction to this. So we're going to see a little broad picture of Leviticus as we get ready to dive into it. Uh, I was thinking about the next sermon series, so first in Second Peter and then on Sunday mornings. Uh, the plan is to go to Judges and look at when everyone's right. And I was talking to Thermogene, I think it was Sunday, and I said, you think about Judges and how they acted, and then you think about they had the book of Leviticus, they had this law, and how far away they went from it. And then you think of how we are, and we have Scripture, and then how far away we can drift from it. Uh, it's just kind of shocking when you think of tying those two uh, together. But uh, Leviticus is, is an amazing book. Uh, the title, An Invitation to Life with God, spells it out perfectly. This is what God is going to say about how to be in his presence as a holy God. I had a question. I don't know if your kids are old enough to do this, but have your kids ever tossed out the completion of their chores as a reason for gaining privileges? I've done this, so can I do that? And what is the nature of chores, right? It is their what? Responsibility. There's, no, there's not supposed to be any gain with it. It's not a favor they did for us. Uh, but oftentimes when you have kids, and, and my youngest is the most creative. Uh, he's six, and he's always coming up with a way uh, to convince Heather. And it's always surrounding, as you can maybe guess, playing video games. There's not free reign at our house, and so there's special times when there are a lot of play. And so he'll come up with a thousand reasons from I'll give you 100 hugs to 20 kisses to I made my bed or someone else hasn't made their bed. And they always tie it to if I did this chore, can I get this? And what they're trying to do, not necessarily perfectly conscious of this, is set the rules of engagement, right? They're trying to say, I do this, can I gain uh, that? Uh, How often, though, do we list what we've done for God as the reasons for the permissions that we give ourselves? And I want you to play into that. So a kid comes to you and says, I did my chores, so I should, get, I should get this privilege. And we say to God, I've done this, and so I should get permission to do this, that, or the other. Uh, I was reading, this is uh, probably a month or so ago. I was reading just a random article. Um, it was about a coffee shop. And the owners of this coffee shop, and I don't know where it was. I'm assuming it was on the West Coast, um, were praised for their extreme and liberal thoughts. They were very progressive and liberal in their thinking. They were very uh, forward thinking. This is how the article would define it and how they were going to treat their employees. Uh, It bordered on ridiculous. (coughs) It was considered the bastion of equitable employment. This is the place that everyone should copy. If everyone would do this, then we would have this utopian society. The shop closed in less than two weeks. And here's why. The employees were not happy with their abundant rights, and they demanded that they get to own the place. Think about that for a second. The most liberal, most progressive, most awesome employment you can imagine. And in the end, they aren't happy because what do they want to be? They wanted to be the boss or the owner. They wanted to have the authority there. Of course, they blamed the person who'd funded the whole endeavor. The two owners said, it's this other person who put the money up and put all these restrictions. There were no restrictions. They always blame someone else. But I want you to see something. You go from children with their chores and gaining privileges. You go to the extreme level of employment where we say at the end of or less than two weeks, we want to own the shop. We've not put any money in. We just we get a job, we get payment for the job, we get ridiculous vacation, but we want to own it. 
and demand to own it to the point where they had just had to shut down the place. And I put in my notes, how often do we tell God we want to own the whole thing to set the rules, to be the boss? And I know Leviticus, and we're going to talk about it, doesn't have a lot of narrative to it. There's about two chapters that really have narrative uh, when two of Aaron's sons are consumed by fire for what they do wrong. And the rest are a lot of what we would often say offerings and sacrifice and feasts and rituals and ways you do things. And, and we look at it and, and sometimes I wonder if we read it and it reminds us who's in charge. And that maybe is why we don't want to read it as much. Now, I know it's difficult. I've, I've re- been reading through it. I know there's a lot involved in Leviticus, but here's the reality God wrote the rules of engagement. He is the creator of all. And this is what's interesting and makes no apology for it. See, we live in a world where everyone's apologizing. Well, I'm sorry I did this when I was 12. And I'm sorry that I, I, these owners of this coffee shop apologized as they closed the shop down because they couldn't turn ownership over to the employees. They apologized for it, which will tell you they never should have owned a coffee shop to begin with. But Here's the reality. God's not apologizing for being the creator and being Lord and being sovereign. That's what people grate under when they read the Old Testament so often, is he's the God that's in charge and he makes no apology for it. Instead, and this is how we have to read Leviticus, most people go to Leviticus and say, how many rules is God going to give Israel? How many stipulations? They can't even walk their own way. They can't even tie their shoes their own way. There was rules for everything. Their life was to be set apart. But here's what's fascinating. When you read Leviticus and you realize that the sovereign, almighty God graciously detailed how we, his rebellious, unholy creation, can have a relationship with the one true God, it changes your perspective, doesn't it? That he graciously articulated to his children, Israel, and then us as the church, what is required of us to walk with him, to have a life with him, And he did so with intricate details. You can read the details in Leviticus and you can grade under them. Or you can read the details in Leviticus and be blown away by how gracious and merciful God is to actually deem us worthy enough to tell us how we can have a life with him. Details that show us our God. And this is what I think is fascinating. And I hope it's one of the takeaways, not the primary one, but one of them that our God is involved in every detail of our life in a very personal way. When you read Leviticus, and I want to encourage you, uh, I know it it can be a tough sit down and read. Uh, It took me about two and a half hours working through it. But if you're ever able to sit down and read through the whole book, uh, I have in front of you, and we're going to talk about that. There's a little map from the Bible Project. uh, uh, It lays out how the book feels, and we're not necessarily going to follow every component that they have, but if you read it and you have that in front of you and you start following along, it's amazing how easy it is or easier it is to understand uh, what's taking place. See, much of the detail that is seen in Leviticus is details that God was explaining to Israel on how they enter His holy presence, how they, a rebellious, sinful people, can have a relationship with God. Now, the word Leviticus means pertaining to, um, it's pertaining to the Levites, which is actually just a, 
Um, it's the Septuagint, comes from the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. If you look for the Hebrew name, it says, and he called, because typically the Hebrew name for a book is always the first word or two words uh, that are there. And so there's some, some sense there of what the book means and why it's called Leviticus. Now you understand why. Uh, to the Hebrew mind, it's and he called. Uh, it speaks to God speaking uh, to them. I prefer uh, the Hebrew name to it in the sense of what it talks about because it really does talk to the whole congregation and it talks to the, it does lay out what the priests need to do and the role of the priests and that's a, a huge part of it. But a lot of it was to deal with what the nation of Israel was going to do. And, and so I like the idea of, and he called, that God spoke. Uh, you might say, why Leviticus? What can we learn about God among all those sacrifices and rules for Israel? How does that help today? And that's a legitimate question to have. Uh, we tend, because of that, right, we think these sacrifices, we see Christ's fulfillment of those sacrifices, and we think, hey, this is gloss over this. This, 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 isn't, this isn't something we need to dive into. Uh, and so we do that, and we, we skip it maybe, and put it with things that used to be important, but now have no bearing on our faith. For people say, well, that's no bearing on there. Um, remember, when Peter was admonishing the church to read Scripture— that's the scripture they'd be reading along with what some of the Apostle Paul was writing and things like that. So remember the early church, uh, when the Bereans searched the scriptures to see if that was so, they were searching those scriptures that was tied in there. When Jesus talked about the law of Moses or the writings of Moses, that was tucked in there and he references it over and over again. Uh, one gentleman, Louis Goldberg, uh, he wrote a commentary. He did a great job on Ecclesiastes as well. And so I, I picked up his commentary and he wrote this. He says, um, when we do that, when we gloss over Leviticus, we end up missing the great blessings that accompany an understanding of the basics and background of our faith. This is a foundational book. This is a critical book. Uh, one writer notes this, Leviticus is God's guidebook for his newly redeemed people, showing them how to worship, serve, and obey a holy God. And I have a question for us just briefly as we look at Leviticus. Are you interested in how you serve, obey, and exist with a holy God? How do you have a relationship with him? Are we interested in what the Israelites would have been interested in? I put, by the way, I've said it many times. It was in the email. Leviticus was the first book studied by a Jewish child. This was the book they read. By the stats, and I'm not a guy that believes all the stats and polls. Actually, I'm a huge skeptic of them because you ask 100 people what they say, right? You ask 100 people their answer, and 90 say this and 10 say that. And I always say, who'd you ask? You didn't ask everybody, you asked the poll. But based on polls, they say that this is the least read book by the Christian church. What was most read is now the least read. Now, it is not a narrative story, though there's narrative portions. Uh, we're not going to see them move from one place to the next. You're not going to see them battling oppressive nations or overcoming a lack of food or water in Leviticus. Instead, guess where Israel is? They're in one place. They're still at Mount Sinai. The tabernacle is completed. So if you're going to place this in the walk that they're in, the tabernacle has been built. We close in our Exodus. They're kind of almost booted from the tabernacle, and you'll see that in the video God speaks from the tabernacle to Moses outside, and by numbers, Moses is in the tabernacle. Leviticus is a critical book about how they're going to be in God's presence. It encompasses one month. First year, so from one Passover to the next, is 
we're, we've completed that by the time we're at the end of Exodus. And now we're diving into year two and Leviticus unfolds in the first month of the second year while they remain camped at Mount Sinai. In many ways, it's almost a pause in the narrative. If you were reading this story, you would read it this way. You would read Genesis, Exodus, pause, numbers. Because Leviticus is not going to move the nation of Israel. They're not going to, you're not going to see them build anything, destroy anything. <coughs> it's all prescriptive, except for that small portion that's narrative where there's a few times where something happens within that month. And so oftentimes we get bored, right? Because we have a very short attention span and we want to see movement, right? We want to see somebody beat up somebody else. We want somebody to march in some desert. We want some rock to be struck so water comes out. We want there to be some tension and we want to see some movement because otherwise what in the world is going on? And yet Leviticus is there tucked in the middle of the Torah that Moses was inspired to write. Uh, I had a whole blurb on Moses being the author and why, and uh, there's always argument. Uh, there is tons of argument about that. Uh, I would go straight to the Bible, read Leviticus 1.1, and it says, And the Lord called unto who? Moses. Makes a lot of sense that he wrote it. You go to the New Testament, and you see Christ talk about the writings of Moses, the law of Moses, and understood the apostles' reference that is coming from Moses. It is biblical evidence-wise undeniable that Moses wrote it. And so I don't spend a lot of time on the other uh, theories and philosophies. If you want to buy one of those books and you want to read that stuff, uh, be my guest. I read through them once and then I'm like, this is so boring because I don't believe all these things anyway. I believe what the Bible says, but you can read about it. There's more theories than you can fill in pages. Uh, The fact is, I believe it's clear that Moses was the author uh, of this, that he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write it. Uh, There's some concepts I pulled from one of the um, commentators. I want to share those with you. And then we're going to dive and watch the Bible Project video, which is going to sketch out and talk through what you see on that page. Uh, That page is going to be for you guys to to take and use as a reference. We'll be diving into the first seven chapters. We'll be looking at five offerings. You're going to see how those offerings are then repeated for the priest and how it ties together. And I think it's fascinating what those offerings stand for and what it signifies and how it encompasses all of their life and then how we can apply it to uh, our own lives. But here are some of the things that Leviticus helps us with. It let Israel know that they were to be separate. They were to be holy to God. And when you break that word out, that word means set apart, which I'm sure you've heard before. Uh, Another one I looked up, it means you're shut up to God, as in you're closed down to anything else but you're shut. So when I say set apart, but there is a standpoint that you're set apart to something. And so you're set apart to God. And so Leviticus tells Israel, you are God's. You're set apart for him. And it, it carries a code of laws that would regulate life and make them different from the pagan nations around them. Israel was never to look even a smidgen like the pagan nations. You know what their calling was to be? To be a light to the nations. And you'll notice that people who are foreigners become Israelites because that's where the truth is. And they were supposed to be worshiping the true God in such a a different, drastic fashion that there was no doubt that they were set apart to God. And here's a little question for all of us. Does the world 
have any doubts that we're set apart to God and then be personal. If you're walking your life, do they know you're set apart to God? Because your calling is the same. You're supposed to be, and we are in Peter. I don't think it's ironic. I think that's providential. What do we just go through, Peter? Be holy for I am holy, quotes Leviticus. We're to be set apart there. Um, two, Leviticus reveals God's holiness to Israel. So they were set apart, but also Leviticus tells Israel how holy God is and what that embodies. Leviticus 19.2, speak, he's saying to Moses, unto all the congregation of the children of Israel and say unto them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. He says it over and over. I did that in the sermon on Sunday. Why did, I read it over and over again for, for a reason. I want you to realize God didn't stutter when he said he was holy. He repeated himself. Anytime you read scripture, everything you read in scripture is important. But if you think God repeats himself multiple times, what does that tell you about that statement? It's important, right? If you're a parent and you tell your kids, don't do that, don't do that. And by the way, don't do that. I think they know that you're serious about don't doing that, right? They understand the repetitive part. And when you're reading scripture and studying scripture, that's one of the clues. If you've gone through uh, the book, How to Read the Bible, um, and, and that we gave out by Howard Hendricks, he's going to talk about that repetitive. If you see something repeated in scripture, then you know this is even more critical than critical. Um, God's holiness is closely related to all his attributes and bears weight on him. God's love, mercy, righteousness, faithfulness. We need to understand and properly grasp his holiness to then understand how that is applied to our lives. Why do people say, I believe in Jesus, he's all love? But that love that they're calling about is a permissive love. Why is God not giving us a permission to sin type of love? Because he is holy. He cannot do that. His mercy comes tied to his holiness. Holiness is one of those, every characteristic of God is critical, but you see how holiness is this magnet that ties everything together. He's holy. And we need to properly glass his holiness to correctly understand how we're to live in his presence. That's the invitation to life with God. Um, number four, Leviticus gave them an outline, a plan for a system of sacrifice that reveals God's way of salvation. Why is this the basics to our faith? Why is understanding this critical? Christ is going to fulfill what this sacrificial system points to. This is critical to understand the depth of your salvation. We're shallow Christians oftentimes because we refuse to get into the Old Testament and understand the foundation of what God has laid and understanding it. Israel would have understood this. When did you have to offer a sin offering? Every time you sin. The Day of Atonement came... How often? Annually. Not once in a lifetime. So the, 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 the constant reminder, uh, the grain offering, which is going to be called the meal offering or the meat offering. And when you read the meat offering, it's not meat, it's meal. Meal means cereal, means grain. And it's going to speak to the farming life just to make it more confusing for everyone. But it speaks to your labor and your life that goes into it. And you gave that out of either gratitude or out of fellowship voluntarily. And so you just start seeing how God's system lays it out. Uh, Goldberg notes this again. Um, I wanna, I'm jumping ahead. Sorry. Number four, um, Leviticus also showed how Israel would be a testimony to the nations. There to be a blessings, and we talked about this, to all people. And foreigners are going to come to follow the true God as they saw the Israelites worship him as he designated. 
Do you know that when you look through Israel's history, when you see them apostate, when you see them take on the pagan religion, you know what you don't typically see? A bunch of foreigners believing in truth. Why? Because they're not seeing them worship in truth. And so they totally forfeit what God called them to do. But when Israel is worshiping God as they should, when you see that renewal among the kings, and you, you seem to always find a hint of someone from the outside that becomes a believer, that, that, that connects because they see the testimony that's in Israel. What is our calling to be? We're a what to the world? We're light. We bring God glory. We're to point to him with everything we do, specifically our worship. This Sunday, just a little preview, we're going to be reminded again that love for the church, for the brethren, is one way that the world knows we're, we're believers. And so Peter is going to admonish all the churches. You're saved, so you need a love. And he's going to say, you're loving, but you better love God's kind of love. He's going to call them to a stronger love for the church. Why? It's the testimony that points to Christ. Israel was to be the testimony that pointed to God to let them know. Uh, Goldboard notes this, the theme of the book tells how an elect holy people should worship a holy God. Key in, the, um, in Leviticus is, let me see if this slide, yep, it works, there we go. Um, key in Leviticus is the idea of holiness intricately woven with atonement and sacrifice. I'm going to work through a few verses. Leviticus 16, 33 through 34 states this, and he shall make an atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make an atonement for the tabernacle of the congregation and for the altar, and he shall make an atonement for the priest and for all the people of the congregation. And this shall be an everlasting statute unto you to make an atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did as the Lord commanded Moses. What does it take to have a relationship with God? What does it cost? Leviticus 17, 11 states, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the block, or it is the blood that making the atonement for the soul. And it takes a real sacrifice, which is going to call for serious sanctification. Leviticus 20, 22 through 23. Ye shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my judgments and do them, that the land whither I bring you to dwell therein spew you not out. And ye shall not walk in the manner of the nation, which I cast out before you, for they committed all these things, and therefore I abhorred them. Sanctified. And so this is a book filled with offerings, feasts, worship times, and more. You're going to see the number seven woven in there uh, intricately in part of the process. And it's fascinating to see how the Lord is working, all indicating that the Israelites, their time, their land, their person belonged to God. Leviticus tells Israel that they belong to God. We don't read it because we don't want to be told who we belong to. We are very independent in our mindset. It's something we're proud of as a nation. And as a nation, it's a wonderful thing. But when you take that and weave it into your relationship with God, where you're to be dependent upon him, where you are not to be autonomous in that sense, but are to submit to him, to the perfect, wonderful, almighty king, well, then it doesn't work. And see, Leviticus is going to tell us that. It's a book that articulates how to worship, but it doesn't relegate itself to just special circumstances of worship. It's not just the ritual feasts that are amazing, and you see it roll with seven months and seven weeks and seven days, and there's a beautiful 
Well, it's beautiful because that's what God designed. I always say if God wanted to pick the number 10, he could have done 10, he could have done 11, he could have done whatever he wanted. He deemed to do what sevens with this one. And it's beautiful when you look at it, how he lays it all out. But it doesn't just talk about special worship circumstances. Instead, it's a book concerned as well with the practical conduct of life and how that is worship and dedication to the one true God. So within the realm of all these regulations, so do this offering, do this feast, this is the time, this is how you do it, this is how you approach it. I mean, there's times where the blood is cast to the right of the altar, when the bird's neck, it's either wrung, it might be pinched off, they pour the blood out. There's so many ways that it's handled and it's in intricate, beautiful detail. If you look at it, you say it's in detail and it's boring me and I don't want, I want the summarized version, I want the cliff notes. Well, you're missing out on what God is doing and why he tells us these details, but he talks about how to farm and how to walk, how to live, how to be right with him. He's a detailed God, and you see worship coming out in dedication to him in every component of life. And so we're going to take a detailed look at each of these and understand what they meant to Israel and how they can apply to us. We're going to be able to see, and I'll talk a little later on, some of the uh, types and connections. There's a lot of connections to Christ in Leviticus. It's one of the books that ties very closely to him. It's used oftentimes in the New Testament. And we're not going to get into all that tonight. Uh, tonight, I want you to feel the weight of the book. And that was my whole goal with all that I've said so far. I want you to feel like, or to feel a little bit of not the burden, that's the wrong word, but that you feel that you picked up something that is of value. If you, and, and Tom, you pan for gold, if it's super light, you know it's not worth as much. But if you pick up something you can't carry, just call me, we'll split it. Um, but, uh, you know, we know the weight of something, right? That it's a weighty thing that it will, will bear on our mind, not be a burden, but bear and have it. I want you to see that from Leviticus tonight. Um, we're going to see the weight and, and, gra- and grasp a little bit the concept of the book as a whole. <clears throat> now, if you've got two and a half hours, three hours, and some coffee or tea, whatever you prefer to drink, and read through the whole book in one sitting, uh, it changes how you see the book. And this is a little diversion from Leviticus. I remember about seven years ago, we were doing Sunday school through uh, the book of Joshua, and we had started it. I went on vacation uh, and uh, I couldn't sleep. That happens frequently for me. And so I was up at 4 a.m. And I remember sitting down and I had a, uh, I had a MacArthur study Bible and I'm just open it up and I'm down in a log cabin and I, I read the whole book of Joshua in one sitting. And it amazed me because some of these Old Testament books, we, we read them in little chunks, don't we? We always chip them up. Well, Leviticus is it's a pretty and maybe you'll think I'm super weird when I say, but I find it fairly exciting when I read through it and I start thinking about what, what God is trying to communicate. But when you sit down and read it one end to the next, it, it puts them all together instead of it being all scattered out. And so I want to challenge you. And we're, when we're working through a book of the Bible, uh, same as on preaching series, find a chance to read through the whole book in one sitting, to sit down and read and walk through it. You'll be surprised what that does for how you see the whole book. It'll help you picture it all. Uh, And so just, again, that's just a a side note challenge on reading God's Word and what is involved in it and what what benefit is to have uh, large chunks of reading. Uh, I've thought about multiple times, like getting away and and taking a day and finding a place where it's comfortable and saying, I'm going to read. I remember reading, somebody says, it finally got to the 50th chapter in Genesis. And it's something about how hard our heart is sometimes. It just takes a while 
of, of reading to understand and to get a grip and to have it speak to us. So again, just challenge you to maybe not take it in a tidbit. I know I talk about you can read the New Testament in a year. You read one chapter a day, five days a week, and you'll finish the whole New Testament. I say that because if you're not reading through the New Testament in a year, shame on you. You're a believer. You should be doing that. But there's really no reason not to read through all the Bible. There's really no reason not to take chunks of it. One of the reasons we struggle in our faith so much is because we don't dive into God's word and actually swallow up a lot or get a full meal out of it. So there's my challenge. I won't ask you if you've read it or not. I'll look coldly. No, just kidding. Um, but just maybe take the challenge if you get a chance. If you're a coffee lover, there's no reason not to. It's, it's a great three cups. So just run through it and go. Uh, kind of close out tonight is this connect to Christ. And this was really what I have loved in my reading the past week through Leviticus. I'm not a guy that likes to see types. So you're looking at the most unimaginative type of personality. I like to read it for what it is. I'm not looking so far in advance. So when I dive into the prophets, it's a lot of work for me because I want to see what God's saying, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm not say resistant to it. There's some people that love to stand up and they'll find a type everywhere. There was a whole portion of the church that got into the allegorical interpretation. Even Augustine fell into that, and it's not the right way to dive into Scripture. With that being said, Leviticus has a wealth of types in it, uh, many that are fulfilled in Christ. I read one commentator, he says, let's not get excessive. Let's go with the ones that we see in the New Testament alone. And there's a wealth of types in Leviticus that connect directly back. If you take the ones that are obvious types, as you read through Genesis, when Isaac is offered on the mountain as the only son, we can see a type in Christ as the anti-type that fulfills that. In Leviticus, even if, and I, I want to challenge you not to wander too far out of there, to be disciplined in your mind, um, we're going to see tons of these types that are fulfilled in Christ in the Gospels. Um, and we can know for certain that, that Leviticus was pointing explicitly to our Savior, to what he was going to fulfill, uh, that you see that Leviticus and Israel is not some blip on the radar. Is that, a lot of times people get caught up in that. Like God was playing around with the nation and he's like, oh yeah, I'm going to do the church thing. That's what I want. Instead, what you're going to find is God had a plan from the beginning of time before the foundation of the world to redeem us. He's, he's never been surprised by our sin and our rebellion. And that Israel is all part of this. He's, it's not just an experiment that God did. This is foundational information for us that helps us understand uh, the depth of our redemption. It highlights the need for Christ. It highlights for us our need for a savior, and it tells us what the real condition of humanity is. Leviticus lets us know who we are and that we need redemption. There's not an Israelite, whether they got it or not, that could deny that it was obvious from Leviticus that they needed something to take away their sin that God was serious about holiness. So with all those connections, Jesus is going to point them out in the Gospels. You're going to see the apostles seeing the writings under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They're going to be connecting to Leviticus. And the thing we have to remember, the Bereans were reading these books of the Old Testament. That was the scriptures they searched. If our Savior connects back to Leviticus, I think it reminds us how important it is.
when he makes connections to his life back to Leviticus, it tells us how important it is. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we have the writers of the New Testament making connections back. We know how important it is. Um, we understand what the Holy Spirit is trying to do. All of that to say there are clear connections that cannot be missed. Why is that? Because living in the presence of the Holy God required acknowledgement of sin and a payment of that sin, and nothing could fulfill that perfectly except Jesus Christ. That's why there's a yearly day of atonement. That's why there's sin offerings. That's why they were constantly coming forward. Every time they came with an offering, as you admitted sin and did a sin offering or a trespass offering, you were acknowledging your need. You were acknowledging, as an Israelite, your insufficiency and your, your drawn closer. It wasn't like you said, I did it, I'm done. I did the offering thing, Mom. I don't have to do it for a couple months. That's not listed in there. And even the Day of Atonement that centers the book, and by the way, that Day of Atonement comes up in Ezra, comes up in Nehemiah, this critical time. And guess what? When Israel is apostating and off, they neglect to celebrate the Day of Atonement. When I say how ironic, it's not ironic at all. There is the deceit of Satan. There is the pulling away from what is truth and what has been commanded. You see, all of these sacrifices tell us that we're not sufficient, that we need something else, that we need Christ. And we understand, and, and, and as we understand this Old Testament sacrificial system, we can then more completely and fully understand Christ's sacrifice for us. Every commentator I've been reading has, has, has highlighted that feature. If we want to understand the depth of our salvation, understand what God said in Leviticus. Get a grip on what God commanded Israel as he walked through. And so I put here uh, Leviticus 27 through 8 says this, Sanctify yourself therefore and be ye holy, for I am the Lord your God. And ye shall keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord which sanctifies you. And this is the interesting thing as we walk through Leviticus we're going to see that sin and sanctification are not casual things. I'm grateful for the detail God gives. I'm grateful in this verse that he commands me to be sanctified. I'm grateful in this verse that he tells me he's going to work to sanctify me. I'm grateful for all the things listed that are listed here because Leviticus tells me something very clearly. God takes sin seriously. God take sanctification seriously. God is serious about holiness. There's no doubt that he loves his children when we read that. There's no doubt that he desires them to be in his presence. Why would he give us, why would he tell us all this? Why would he communicate in such beautiful detail what needs to be done if he didn't desire us? But it is on, and I highlighted this, it is on his terms. And that's something that Leviticus lets me know, that rebel in me, the boss in me, the controller in me, the one that wants to give myself permission or rights or different things exclusive from what God has said. Leviticus wipes that out and it tells me that I come to God on his terms. He desires us. But here's the thing, and this combats our world's philosophy. We don't write to God and say, this is how I'm willing to come to you. We don't tell God how he will respond. We instead have the wonderful, gracious God telling us how to respond. And we then, in his mercy and grace, are able to respond. And that's what Leviticus tells us. Um, that